My name is Matt Yoder, and I'm one of the pastors here alongside Joey. And uh, we're going to finish up 1 John today. So if you want to turn to 1 John, that would be great. 1 John 5, starting in verse 13. Um, just, like Justin said, we're going to start a Christmas series next week, an Advent series for three weeks. And then after that, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians. Um, which I'm especially excited about. So next week there'll be a lot of Christmassy things around here, and um, it'll be it'll be good. And it sounds like the weather's going to turn with it too. So um, enjoy today while you can. So have you ever gone to church for the first time without knowing a soul there? Maybe that's you today. If that's you, I hope. You feel welcome and comfortable. I'm sure those cinnamon rolls did the trick to help you with that. But let's just say there weren't cinnamon rolls, and you walk into a church for the first time. You don't know anybody. You're not there with someone. You're just, here you are at this church, right? You're probably afraid of what people might say. You're probably afraid of what people don't say if if no one talks to you. Um, you're, you're afraid of, of knowing when to stand, when not to stand, what am I supposed to do with my hands, you know, other, other things like that. You just don't know what to do. Um, you, don't, you don't know where to go to the bathroom. So halfway through, you're like, I, don't, uh, I guess I'll just hold it. And it's just, it, it can be awkward too, right? So, um, and, then, and then a person gets up front. And so you have a total lack of trust of that person because you don't know who they are. Um, and so credibility isn't there, so why should I trust what they say? Um, are they just faking it, or do they actually care about me? And as I'm describing this, a lot of you introverts are starting to puke in your mouth, um, but you extroverts are like, yeah, that'd be awesome, and <laughs> it's weird, but uh, I'm actually with you. Um, but one factor would change that for you. One factor would change that for you. If you came with a friend to church, your best friend, and a factor that would change it even more is if that best friend was the pastor who was preaching that Sunday. Because you trust them. Trust what they're going to say. They, they can show you where the bathroom is. They can uh, introduce you to some people and, and, and make it a lot more comfortable for you. So I want, I want you to think for a second. Does any of this describe your life right now? Do you lack joy? Are you not consistently growing in spiritual maturity? Is your love for God lacking passion? Maybe you're always looking for some new truth or new experience that will pull all the pieces together in your, in your faith, but you just haven't found it. Maybe your prayers are few and far between, and when you do pray, you lack much confidence. And, or maybe your battle against sin could rarely be labeled victorious. All of us are like that at points, including myself. And we lack confidence. We lack victory. Why? Well, one factor could change everything. And that's assurance. Assurance that you belong to Jesus that you are going to heaven when you die and you are his and nothing can separate you from him. And if we let that reality, that truth for those who have believed in Jesus, if we let that truth seep into our souls each day, 
all of those things I just mentioned, lack of joy, prayerlessness, all of, this, all of these other things can start to get remedy because we're confident, not in anything in us, but in everything that Jesus has done. And that's what John is talking about in this last section in 1 John. He's saying, you know what? I want you to remember one thing. Be assured that you are his. If you believe in Jesus, have assurance. So look at that with me. Look at verse 13. He says that. says why he's writing, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? Authentic Christians are confident in eternal life. He tells us why he's writing this letter too. That's his whole goal that you would be assured of your salvation, just like he does in the Gospel of John. John 20, verse 31 says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's why I point people who are seeking, and maybe that's you today, I point you towards the Gospel of John, the book of John. Read that because John wrote that so that you would believe in Jesus and to convince you that you should believe in Jesus and he's worth it. But now, 1 John is written to those who have already believed and saying to believers, hey, you can know without a shadow of doubt that you have eternal life. And you can know that because of the source of your confidence, and that's Jesus. Not confident in my own believing, surely I need to believe, but in the object of my belief, in Jesus Now, it's not prideful to be assured of your salvation because the alternative is to reject what God says, right? To disbelieve God and what he says in the Bible, what he says right here in this verse, 1 John 5, 13. It says in this section, 1 John 5, 13 to 21, the word know, K-N-O-W, seven times. He does that because he's just trying to drive home, hey, you can know for sure that you have eternal life, that you are his, and that will change the way you live. He's also writing here to battle a false teaching that said, hey, you you need to believe in Jesus and have this special knowledge. And John's saying, hey, you know what? Believing in Jesus is that special knowledge. Okay, so there's, there's, there's not this next thing. It's you need to come back to that or come to that for the first time. So if you're confident in eternal life, you'll have confidence and you'll have victory that will flow into your life now. So when I was doing student ministry, I loved to go on campus, the college campus, and just ask students, hey, um, what percent sure are you that you, if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Um, not a great way to start a conversation. I wouldn't just start it that way. But um, maybe it would be sometimes. But anyway, most of the students would respond around 70%. 70% sure. Common response is, only God knows for sure. I, I don't want to be too prideful. You know, I've been a pretty good person, but I still make mistakes. And I always tell them, what if, what if I told you you could be 100% sure? Nine times out of ten, they'd be like, that'd be awesome. And then I would literally go to this verse. What's it say? 
If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. Pretty black and white. 100% or 0%. There's really no room for in between. If death doesn't hold you captive, it frees you in so many ways. This type of confidence will propel you forward in all sorts of ways. And John lays out some of those ways. Propel you forward in confidence in prayer. Look at verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Powerful passage. The New Living Translation, um, which is a fantastic translation um, in verse 14, says this, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we, we ask for anything that pleases him. So there's a condition here to our prayers. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and answers us. And in, then LT says, what does that mean, to ask according to his will? It means to ask for things that please God. How do we know what pleases God? We look in the Bible. What pleases God? Those are the things I'm going to ask for. And most of the time, we can know from the Bible, from his word, what pleases him or doesn't please him. Sometimes you don't really know what pleases him. It's more gray. Pray anyway. Pray confidently anyway. I mean, we can do that. We can pray confidently for things that we're not sure if it's God's will. But then say what Jesus said. When he's, when he's on the cross, not my will but yours be done, God. That doesn't take away from our confidence. People are like, yeah, you're not being confident. You don't have enough faith if you're, if you're saying that. Oh, really? Jesus did it. We can pray confidently about things that we're not really sure if it's God's will. So the first question I want to ask you is, are you asking? Are you praying? Are you praying for God to move in a powerful, specific way, in many powerful, specific ways in your life? When are you doing that? It takes discipline. Very rarely do people want to pray. Do I want to pray if I'm honest? So I've been trying to seize my commute lately, as, as one author said of a book I've been reading lately, to just take my time, shut off the radio, and just come boldly to God and ask for things. But the thing is, the condition is according to his will, but is the attitude we need to have is confidence. Confidence. If you aren't confident, why not? It can be many things. Maybe you doubt that he even hears you. Am I just talking to the ceiling? You doubt that he'll answer. Maybe you've been burnt by him in the past, not answering, or it didn't seem like he answered, or maybe he answered in a way you didn't like. Or maybe it's just laziness. I, I've been in those camps, in all of those camps at some point in my life, in my prayer life. 
And I get it. But here's the truth. Here's the capital T truth that we're confronted with in verses 14 and 15. Asking and praying changes things. James says that you don't have because you do not ask. Do you believe that? I mean, capital B, do you believe that? Because if you did, you'd be praying confidently, not out of duty, but out of delight, because you're so sure of your salvation, because of what Jesus did on the cross, that now I can't help but confidently pray that God's will would be done in my life, that he would work powerfully in this person's life, that he would work, work powerfully and, and miraculously in this situation. Those doubts I mentioned, those fears, that laziness, talk through that with other people. Don't keep that hidden inside. That's how you work through doubt and remind yourself of the assurance of eternal life. You can be just as assured that prayer is powerful and changes things as you can that you're his, that you have eternal life. Second question I want to ask is, are you praying for things that please God? Or are you praying for things that just please you? If your prayers are mainly, if your prayer life mainly consists of bless this road trip and pray that the Hawkeyes would win, I can't blame you for praying that. But but no wonder they're not being answered. I really don't think God cares if the Hawkeyes win. Uh, I don't think he cares if the Cyclones win either. (gasps) (laughs) But if you're not sure if it pleases God, search Scripture. And if you're still not sure, keep praying for it. So first, are you praying? But then are you praying according to his will? Third question, are you confident in in your prayers? Yeah, submissive to God, absolutely and to his will. But are you bold? Are you specific? You have access to the God of the universe, and you're praying to bless your road trip? That's fine. That's not a horrible prayer. But it's certainly not a bold, confident prayer. If we have access to the God of the universe who breathed out stars and yet formed my heart, why aren't we asking boldly for things? Some, some confident, bold prayers I've been praying lately. Um, and, and they can be really mundane things too, right? So one of them is just for patience in heated situations. I, I mean, I think we all could, could use a little more of that, but I especially need that. Heated situations, my patience tends to leave for some reason. Um, but God's been answering that prayer. So I've just been praying for it more and more. I've been praying... God to give me words to help encourage people. I can be too critical of people way too quickly. So just words. How can I encourage this person and not just jump to critique? I've been praying for um, something that's not, well, something that I'm not sure if it's God's will, but it seems like it's God's will. And that's, that's for the life of our child. So many of you know about a year ago, we had uh, a miscarriage, um, our third child. And so now we're, 
we um, are pregnant again. My wife is pregnant. I am not. Um, but, <laughs> but we're past that point, praise God, where we miscarried last time. But it's still kind of nerve-wracking. But, but I'm just trying to pray confidently. And I don't know. It's, you know, God loves life. He created life. So it seems like this would be your will, God. But I'm, I'm praying you preserve the life of my child for your glory. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Are you praying like that? To do more than we could think up, more than we could dream up, more than we can imagine. Are you praying for God to do those sorts of things in your life, in the lives of people around you, in your church, in your community? I mean, that's what we're called to in these verses. Shake the shackles of your woundedness in prayer and pray boldly, fearlessly. Pray big. You got a big God. Now, the application of verse 14 and 15 is found in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What's this sin leading to death, sin not leading to death deal? It's kind of besides the point. No, it is besides the point of what John's trying to say. But there's two major views on it, and I would be happy to send that to you. And I would be happy to talk to you about it. I've, I've thought through it a lot this week. Um, and I, I'm not still 100% sure, uh, but, but I lean a certain way. But um, I found comfort when one of the commentators said that this was the hardest passage in the New Testament to interpret. So it felt, in a weird way, I felt better about that. Um, but here's, here's what it's saying. Don't stand there and cast judgment on people when you see them sinning, like you're God. Don't, first and foremost, jump all over people when you see them sinning. Don't, Pat yourself on the back for not being like them. I think Jesus had something to say about that. Do pray. When you see people sinning, and we live in a messed up world, we see ourselves sinning, we see people around us sinning all the time, pray. That's what we need to do. That's what those verses are saying. That's the focus. Ask, pray. Don't lose the target here. If these people don't know Jesus, pray that they would see their need for a Savior to receive forgiveness for the sins that they're committing. If they they do know Jesus, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and lead them to the path of life, that they would see what Joey said last week on 1 John 5, 3, that his commands aren't a burden, that they would be able to see that. His commands are actually really good and turn from their sin. So don't be judgmental. Love them. Pray for them. And that might mean doing what Galatians 6 tells us to do and go and gently restore them. 
So God might have you jump into their life, not go, hey, you're sinning, what are you doing? No, jump in and go, hey, I noticed this, and I want to help you because I love you. But what's your reaction to other people's sin? Is it prayer that God would give them spiritual life? Because that's what it's asking. Pray that, they would give, that God will give them life. Is that what you're doing when you see people sin? So, authentic Christians are confident in eternal life. They're confident in prayer. And then they're victorious. They're victorious over sin. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Look, he says, we know. So because, again, John's saying, because you're confident in eternal life, and you're confident in prayer, now be confident in victory over sin. Because if you're confidently assured of eternal life, You will not keep on sinning, it says. Or the New Living Translation is a better better translation from the original language. It says, do not make a practice of sinning. We'll certainly still sin as believers. I do, you do, we certainly still do sin. But are we practicing it? Are we caring? Are we, when we sin, do we go, hey, no big deal? Or are we taking that and going, yeah, that's a big deal. God, forgive me. I repent of that. I don't want to do that again. Give me strength to not go there again. Is it your habit? And when you're convinced that you're his, when, when you live in victory, it means you're living in victory over sin. You're practicing what pleases God, not practicing what God hates. So because of Jesus, we're already victorious over sin. So in one sense, our position is that we're already forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, future, beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let that radical, radical, almost made up a new word, radical, unfathomable reality propel you to daily victory over sin. But it's not just you being motivated by your positional victory over sin. It's Jesus actually enabling you to live in that victory. It says here, he who was born of God protects him. So let me translate that. He who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, the believer. So we're not just motivated, but we're empowered by Jesus to live victoriously over sin. What does Jesus do to enable us to live in that victory? It says he protects us from the evil one, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, I, I was excited for this text, and then I ran into that and verses 16 and 17 and got a little less excited. But... I think this one, I got my arms around. So in Greek, what does it mean to touch? What does it mean that the evil one, the devil, can't touch you as a believer? Um, It means to touch without the intent to harm. So it doesn't mean that the devil can't tempt you. 
It doesn't mean that the devil can't accuse you and deceive you and heavily, heavily influence you because you better believe he can. But John Piper puts it this way. He can't touch us with any deadly touch. So both physically and spiritually. He can't take away your salvation and he cannot physically kill you. But first, Peter says that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to destroy people, specifically Christians. The devil is strong, and the devil hates you. And he'll stop at nothing to get you to sin. So I want you to imagine for a second that you're walking down the sidewalk. It's a beautiful day like today. It's great. You're just walking along. Singing, feeling groovy, probably. And then you see up there in front of you a dog, a really ferocious dog. And you see it's not chained up. And uh, you're getting closer. And you're like, well, I can't run because then it'll chase me. Uh, so you just keep walking, maybe a little slower. And I'm not going to make eye contact, you know. And then as you, as you get up to it, the dog starts barking as loud as it can and is coming as fast as it can right towards you and bam, it runs into a fence. Chain link fence. You were so scared you didn't even notice the 10-foot chain link fence. You maybe felt some slobber and certainly were, were affected. But that dog didn't touch you. That's what it's like for a Christian in regards to the devil. Jesus is our chain link fence. He protects us. We can be sure of that. When you walk past there again, you might even walk past with a little skip in your step, like, (laughs) you know, because you you know, he can't do anything. But you could be greatly affected by that dog. You can be greatly affected by the devil. You know that to be true. But he can't make you sin. The devil did not make you do it. Jesus enables us to live in the victory by the Holy Spirit inside of us. 1 John 4, 4, a couple weeks ago, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the confidence we have. That's the victory we have over sin. We don't have to give in to the devil's schemes. We don't have to listen to him. His influence doesn't have to affect us. So we're motivated and we're empowered by Jesus to live victoriously over sin. And then authentic Christians are victorious over idols. Verse 19 to 21. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thanks for the abrupt ending, John. By the way, keep yourselves from idols. Mic drop. Or if you're from the 90s like me, peace. Joey told me not to do it, and I couldn't help it. (laughs) Um, 
But let's, so what I was talking about was keep, he says, keep yourselves from idols. He's not talking about idols, and now he is, and he's gone. I don't, I don't quite get it. So let's make some sense of it by working backwards in verses 19 to 21. How do we keep ourselves from idols? John answers that. Not by saying, hey, stop making football your idol. Slap. You know? We don't do that to ourselves. If we, if we find that there's an idol in our life, something that's taking the place of God in our hearts, we don't go, stop making that an idol. It doesn't work. Our hearts are idol factories, John Calvin said. So we need to turn our attention and turn our affections away from that idol and to God. We need to have a clear vision. And have a clear vision. Imagine you're saving up for a vacation to the Bahamas with your friends. You're super excited about it. All-inclusive resort. It's going to be amazing. Okay? What would motivate you to save up money faster for that vacation? If you saw videos of the Bahamas, right? The, the blue ocean and the snorkeling and zip lines, whatever else. I don't know if they have those in the Bahamas. Whatever, whatever they have there. You watch some videos about the resort. And you spend more time with your friends that you're going with. Both of those things are going to motivate you and propel you to save quicker for this vacation. So you can just get there. Clear vision. John tells us in verse 20, a clear vision of the true God is what will help you let go of idols. Notice in verse 20, he says over and over, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If we have a clear vision of God, it's easier to let go of idols. Here's what we learn about the true God in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. That's what Christmas is about. He loved us that much that he didn't stay put, but he was proactive, sought us out, came to earth, See, the true God, the real God, not idols, true God cares deeply about you. Did you know that? Do you believe that? Idols don't give a rip about you. Let's not talk about the idol of football. Let's talk about the idol of control. The idol of control says, if I had a little more control around here, life would be much easier for me and everyone around me. Control doesn't pursue you. Control does not care about you. You pursued it. It cared about your ease a little bit, but it certainly did not have your best in mind. See, the true God pursues you and loves you in the best way possible. Not just mere temporary comfort and peace of mind because you're in control. It says he gives us understanding in verse 20. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Here's, here's the true God. He is clear. He gives us understanding. He said in verse 13, here's how you can know you can have eternal life. 
He makes it clear how you can be assured of that. He's black and white. Idols are fuzzy and gray in their intentions to invite you to do what? Don't really know. Pleasure for a few seconds? An easy life? Again, the idol of control that says, if I had a little more control around here, life would be much easier for me and for everyone around me gives you no clear path to sure control, right? In fact, you're always fearing losing control. The true God makes clear that you can rest in his control. I'm God. You're not. Trust me. So if we have a clear vision of the true God, we can let go of idols. If we have a clear vision of our true home, that helps us as well. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are from God. For believers, we need to clearly see that earth, our temporary home, is not our home. That this world, society, lies under the power of the devil. And so, most of the things on this planet are just a distortion of God's beautiful things. While idols are more physically tangible, we need to realize that they cannot satisfy you as they promise, and they won't and cannot last like your true home. We need to have a, a, a deeper longing for our real home in heaven with Jesus. And the darker, the dimmer this world becomes, the more hope we should actually have. It should not produce more hopelessness. You know, the people that walk around and go, what is becoming of this world? Ah, man, I don't know how I'm going to raise my kids. They have it much harder than it was for me growing up. It's much harder. This world is much darker, and I don't know about that. This world's been dark ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. I don't know how you measure that. It's probably getting darker. It's probably getting worse. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but if it seems like it's getting worse, that should actually propel us to find more confidence in our true home and less confidence in this world. And if we can get a clear vision of our true home and see how messed up this world is, it, it will help us let go of idols. Because we'll be like, oh yeah, that thing really is not worth it and it's all messed up. We see countless examples in our society of that right now, of darkness penetrating all over the place. And we should just go, yeah, that's right. That's why. I'm not going to pursue idols. That's why I'm going to let go of that because it's not worth it. This isn't my home. Loosens our grip of this dark world and wakes us up to where our idols lead and that's to destruction. Gives us clear vision of what is right. So two questions to end. I think these would be the questions John would ask us today if he was here. Do you believe in Jesus? 
not in the concept of Jesus, in the man, Jesus Christ, who came and died and rose from the dead and wants a relationship with you. And if you do, is your life marked by confidence in what Jesus did and victory? If not, keep running back to the cross. Keep running back to the foundational truth of verse 13 that you can know you have eternal life. I'm sure I'm his because of who he is and what he did. And it'll bring you confidence in prayer and victory over sin. Let's pray. God, I thank you that all of us here this morning have the potential to stand here and know for sure, 100%, that we are yours. So I pray for those who are doubting, who are skeptical, who are not sure what they think of you, that you would reach into their hearts today and help them realize that you alone can satisfy them, that you are what they are looking for. And they would believe in you. And for those of us who believe in you, help us not to doubt. Help us to be assured and have that lead to confidence today victory this week boldness this week maybe like we've never experienced before in Jesus name Amen